Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagar Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress is back in session as President Biden pledges another $33 billion in aid for Ukraine, 20 billion of which would be for more military equipment that comes on top of $4 billion already donated to Kyiv. Russia is making gains in Ukraine's east, but generals still hint at a broader goal of taking the entire south of the country all the way over uh, and including Transnistria in Moldova as Vladimir Putin and other senior leaders and government mouthpieces escalate their nuclear rhetoric. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited Kiev and hosted a 40-nation donor conference in Germany, garnering increased assistance for Ukraine. Still, Russia is already circumventing sanctions by increasing trade with China, India, Gulf states, and other nations, as well as sequencing transactions through intermediaries raising whether sanctions need to be expanded and tightened, as well as imposing secondary sanctions to pressure those doing trade with Moscow to stop. Emmanuel Macron beat Marine Le Pen uh, to retain the French presidency, even as his margin of victory was smaller than it was when he took office five years ago. And in their battle against COVID, Chinese officials are increasingly brutally locking down citizens in Shanghai and now turning their attention to Beijing, resulting in chaotic scenes and rising discontent uh, in major cities. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, Terry Schultz, a freelance journalist in Brussels who reports for Deutsche Welle and National Public Radio, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and HII sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show, uh, and Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's annual meeting in Nashville. Check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune into the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, everybody, like I said, thanks so much for joining us, Terry. Great to have you uh, back. Dove, great to have you back. Michael, start us off, right? I mean, Congress is back to uh, resume the nation's uh, and the people's business. Uh, a lot on the agenda. Uh, whether it's uh, President Biden's uh, $33 billion request for uh, Ukraine, there's obviously COVID relief package, there's build back better language, there's Article 42 in the border, there's competes uh, and uh, um, uh, this, the Senate uh, measure, right? Sort of, you know, oh, and by the way, there's the $773 billion administration's uh, budget request. Uh, as well as the $100 billion uh, that uh, we have been discussing on this program for the last couple of weeks. Sort of like start us off on where Congress is, uh, given there's so much on the agenda. So nothing's easy on the Hill. So a lot of these things are actually interconnected. Uh, we talked last week about the Ukraine uh, supplemental that we all expected this week and that Speaker Nancy Pelosi actually hoped to take up this week. 
However, it did not arrive uh, on the Hill until yesterday. Uh, and, you know, the House finished their uh, votes for the for actually not just for the week yesterday, but they're now out until the week of May 9th. Uh, and the Senate also completed its work, but they will be in session next week. Um, now, the, the package obviously very well received. Members want to get this passed. As you mentioned, it's $33 billion in funding, which, you know, as you know, is bigger than many nations' uh, defense budgets. And uh, while the bulk of it goes to uh, the DOD, a lot of it also goes to the Department of State and to USAID. Uh, but you know, one of the bigger surprises in there was we talked last week about money being available for foreign military financing. And the talk from that I had heard from State Department was around $700 million. There's actually uh, $400, uh, not $400, billion going to foreign military fi financing, which the Ukraine can use to uh, buy weapons uh, itself. Uh, so that was pretty uh, significant. Now, in order to, there is a in order to get this passed, though, now that Congress has to be back in session, but there is talk of tying the COVID relief package to the Ukraine package, and that really could slow it down. Uh, and the administration actually supports tying the two together because, as you know, COVID relief is being held up because of what you alluded to earlier, Title 42, which was the authority to prevent um, you know, people coming across the border during time of pandemic, which the Biden administration wants to lift. A uh, federal judge has issued an order barring the administration from ending Title 42. However, that order is only in effect for 14 days. And it looks like both parties seem to be realizing there's gonna to have to be a vote on Title 42. It probably will pass in the Senate and the House won't have the votes uh, to override it. So if they tie the two together, I would expect it to pass, but it really could uh, delay uh, the passage. Um, now, you also talked about uh, the president's defense budget, which is sitting on the Hill yesterday. There was what's called the Four Corners meeting. So the senior appropriators, both the chairman uh, and ranking members of the House and Senate uh, appropriations committees, met to try and come up with a top line number. It's great that they're meeting and talking, but there's no way they're going to come up with a top line number yet. And in fact, Senator Shelby uh, said yesterday after the meeting, he doesn't expect us to have a top line number until after the election. And that's because there are still other things hanging out there that impact uh, the top line. And you mentioned BBB, and that's one of them. If the Democrats aren't going to let BBB uh, die, uh, the Republicans are not going to agree to a top line for defense because BBB would add money to uh, non-defense domestic discretionary spending. I don't anticipate BBB ever happening. Uh, the, you know, the, the mansion has come out saying he, the only way he'll do it through the reconciliation process if it raises uh, corporate taxes. And Kristen Sinema's come out saying she doesn't support raising corporate taxes. But this, you know, continues to to uh, to limp along. Uh, also, the president uh, has been talking about forgiving student loan debt, and uh, that would raise that will cost. Uh, uh, you know, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, depending on how much they decide to relieve if they do. So there's no way uh, that the Republicans are going to agree to a top line for defense as long as this is hanging out there. Now, you mentioned 100 billion. Uh, so that number has been floating around. Uh, yesterday, uh, a number was actually floated to me of 150 billion. Uh, and earlier in the week, another number of 50 billion was floated. So the numbers that are being floated are really between 50 billion and 150 billion. And the, and the concern about going to when you start to reach 100 billion and higher, the fear uh, is that you could start to lose Republicans with that number because, you know, I think you're going to see Republicans start to rediscover their, you know, their fiscal conservativeness. And uh, we could start to lose Republicans as that number grows. So that that is a debate that's going to go on for months. But uh, there are I, I think the floor is, you know, 50 billion, but it's certainly going to be higher than that. Um, now, the China uh, bill is also being stalled, too. Now, even though the Senate voted yesterday to formally go to conference, that's just process. Uh, nobody thinks that this bill, or very few people think this bill is going to be done quickly. Uh, and, you know, there's also only 32 legislative days left until the August recess, only 43 legislative days left until the election. So with every passing day, uh, these things become harder, harder to pass. But 
they're still going to go through the conference. And like we mentioned last week, if that's unsuccessful, I think the chips portion will be pulled out and put in an end of the year uh, spending package. Uh, the Lend-Lease bill we talked about last week also passed uh, the House yesterday, uh, overwhelmingly, 417 uh, to 10. So that's another piece of good news. So now that the president has expanded authority to uh, lease defense materials to our allies under the Arms Control uh, Export Act. And um, you know, lastly, uh, you know, there was a vote which was encouraging, uh, expressing support for Moldova's democracy and their territorial integrity. Uh, that did pass uh, with a much bigger margin than the vote to support NATO uh, passed. And then uh, Kai Kahaley, who's on the House Armed Services Committee, announced that he would not be running for election. So that's yet another Democrat that will lose from the House Armed Services Committee next year. And uh, obviously some polling uh, out that indicates the challenges uh, Democrats certainly face uh, as uh, they go into this uh, election uh, cycle, although that's a topic we're going to discuss much more uh, over uh, the coming uh, months, uh, weeks and months. Uh, Terry, uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, I'm not going to ask you about domestic politics because you're absorbed and and uh, in Brussels and uh, you know, focused on, on NATO and what's going on uh, there. Uh, obviously, the donor conference was very important, and, and there is uh, a lot of international support for what President Biden is doing, maybe not in, in Moscow. Uh, but I know you're focused uh, much more on what's next with uh, Sweden and Finland. Carl Bildt wrote in uh, Foreign Affairs uh, discussing this, obviously a former Swedish prime minister who's long been an advocate for uh, membership uh, in uh, Sweden's membership in NATO. Um, Give us also a sense on where this military campaign uh, is going, right? I mean, the Russians have been making some incremental gains uh, in the East, obviously a new commander uh, there, uh, a sense, uh, as we hear from British and American uh, backgrounders, as well as on the record, that the Russians are sort of getting uh, their, their act together striking all parts of Ukraine as well. Uh, missile strikes, Antonio Gutierrez, the NATO secretary, uh, excuse me, the UN Secretary General uh, was in Kiev uh, when Russia decided to strike it. Clearly some messaging uh, uh, there. Talk to us yeah. a little bit about what NATO leaders are saying about what's next uh, in this war. And specifically the concern that the Russians are spending more and more time talking about the uh, uh, nuclear and nu nuclear responses. The president uh, addressed then in his comments in announcing the $33 billion package. Give us your sort of NATO sense on what's next, where we are in the war, what's coming, and, and whether or not anybody in headquarters is taking those nuclear threats as seriously as perhaps Moscow wants them to be taken. Hi, hi, everyone, and thanks for having me, Vago. I'm actually sitting at NATO right now as I've just gotten out of a briefing, um, a background briefing um, with a NATO intelligence official on arranging, uh, basically cover, covering a bit of, of all of those things, um, starting with uh, starting with sort of NATO's assessment of how the Russians are doing. Um, they, there's certainly not a rosy picture here. They do believe that the, the Russians continue to make progress, but that you can see so many cracks in their military performance that that the, the weapons, the, the equipment they're using um, comes from old stock, not new stock, uh, uh, having to pull stuff out of storage, which everyone knows the Russians don't maintain well. So nobody's, nobody uh, has high hopes um, for Russia that, that this is going to, you know, to help their performance. And just continuing admiration and amazement at the strength of the Ukrainian response. Now with, with Ukraine getting upgraded supplies from the West. Um, there's just reports out while we've been sitting here that um, Ukrainian pilots are, are being trained on, I believe it was F-16s, um, uh, you know, that, that, um, that possibly this new push of weapons, including from Germany, 
um, and 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 other other NATO and and EU members that you know possibly this is going to allow Ukraine to finally move into an offensive position instead of merely being able to defend. But, you know, there are really concerning signs, as you mentioned, um, the, the UN Secretary General being in Kyiv and and having having missile strikes while he's there. Uh, this this intelligence official pointed out that that as Russia moves into older stocks, um, it's going to have even less precision in its in its strikes than it than it has now, um, and so that we should be looking for um, more mistakes. Um, so it was it was pretty pretty ballsy to to attack Kiev while while Antonio Guterres is there, um, but also that you're going to see higher civilian casualties. Um, I, I mean, if the Russians if the Russians do care to to try to avoid civilians, which I think is a huge question mark. Um, they're not going to be able to do it as well with older munitions. Um, uh, on, on, on Finland and Sweden, uh, um, uh, an issue near and dear to my heart, having lived in Finland for many years, um, this is increasingly expected to happen very, very quickly with the Finns and Swedes most likely um, sending a letter of intent to, fin to NATO um, about their intention to join, their wish to join, um, probably around May 18th or shortly thereafter due to, to meetings and, and a culmination of, of events on, on, in both countries. Um, so yeah, this is expected to happen and, and happen quickly. And um, I think NATO definitely will, NATO, the 30 allies will definitely pass this. They will ratify the, the um, applications quickly. And um, I think NATO will feel more fortified as well as, as the Finns and Swedes. Um, I think that's that's basically an overview of, of, of what I've got. I'm, right. I'm happy to answer any other questions you've got. The question I want to take it to, uh, and Dove, I'm going to uh, come to you in, in a moment uh, with this. But uh, the, the nuclear sable rattling, it, this started with Putin attending a nuclear test. The United States uh, has deferred from a nuclear test, although the United States did conduct a hypersonic test specifically for that. Uh, the president and other leaders, uh, other nuclear powers uh, in the NATO alliance have sort of made clear one of the rules in the nuclear club is you, you know, it's like fight club. You don't talk about fight club. Uh, you don't make nuclear threats. Uh, indeed, the Russians agreed to that, uh, right? Uh, that yeah. uh, nuclear weapons would only be used uh, for existential defense and, and nobody's existentially threatening Russia, right? Russia is the aggressor in this case. How, how are European leaders and NATO leaders uh, re responding to this? Because the NATO alliance used to spend quite a lot of time during the Cold War thinking nuclear, figuring out how to fight in a nuclear environment, what have you. Um, what's, um, you know, what, how, how is that all being received? And, and what are NATO officials telling you about how they're preparing for that possibility if it happens? Well, I mean, it's notable that that none of the none of the Western um, nuclear powers have changed their nuclear posture, and and that's something that this official repeated again today. That we can't say they won't do it. We've told them not to do it, but um, the intel from the ground doesn't indicate they're planning to use nuclear right. weapons. There has not been an increase in um, you know there hasn't been a change in in, in practical um, arrangements uh, in the case of a nuclear attack. Um, but at the same time, this official said, you know, the intel about about the possibility that they'll do it remains valid. Um, and they're very much sticking to this this tactic of um, announcing it regularly and calling it a false flag narrative and this kind of, you know, this kind of behavior. And they presume that this is working because nothing, none of these uh, possible false flag attacks, not just nuclear, but chemical, biological 
radiological attacks. None of those have, have actually come to pass despite all the, the saber rattling on the Russian side. So I think that's pretty stable. I, I mean, the, the concern is there, but I don't think it's, it's spiked in any way. Uh, and let me ask you uh, uh, one, one more question uh, about uh, forward deploying troops, right? I mean, there's this uh, sense that as the Russians get, uh, you know, I mean, the Russians have said they will tar- target arms convoys, they will target nations that are providing arms, there's mm-hmm. strength in numbers, right? I mean, so the whole idea of all of us supplying arms m- means Russia's beef is now with 40 nations, not just three or four nations that are providing arms. Are we seeing, you know, the Brits announced 8,000 more troops. Are we seeing a concerted drive by the alliance to put more troops over on to its uh, eastern borders uh, to as a as a deterrent? Well, I mean, they already have beefed up troop, troop levels. I haven't seen any any announcements of any major movements. Um, but uh, also, as, as this official pointed out, Russia has not had a lot of success if it's had the aim to disrupt the convoys of, of weapons coming in. There haven't been, you know, any large scale attacks on the on the supply lines. So that's encouraging for allies that either they can't do it or for some reason they haven't done it, the Russians. Um, so I'm not sure if it's so much troops on uh, any more troops because they've already um, they've already pretty much uh, packed in what what they intended to, you know, the, the numbers that they intended to 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 bolster with um, uh, over the over the last week. So we haven't really seen a big difference in troop in troop movements, um, but more in uh, in movements of equipment and supplies. And that that seems to be going well. And and um, I think that was certainly one of Secretary Austin's goals at uh, uh, last week at Ramstein was to point out how essential this is that they need ammunition, they need continuing supply lines. Um, of all these weapons, and again, um, an upgrade in the quality of weapons, in the in the uh, lethality of weapons. Um, people aren't shying away from that as much as they were at the beginning of the conflict. Um, uh, Dove, uh, I want to go uh, and bring you into the conversation. Um, you know, you are among the voices. You know, I've been one of the voices. I think all of us have been. We've got to do more for Ukraine, and indeed, uh, the international community in the United States is doing more. At this point, I think we're talking about you know, we're, we're sharing too many details about what it is we're doing, how we're doing it, because I don't think uh, the Russia, you know, I think everybody's trying to be accountable and show tangibly what they're doing. The, the problem is you're also now telegraphing to the Russians what it is you're doing. And I have a piece on that on our website uh, today. Give us, give us your takeaways, right? I mean, was President Biden right uh, with the $33 billion package? Uh, is it on track? What has to happen next? Uh, and some other takeaways, because it's been a very consequential uh, week where we did see uh, the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense uh, visit uh, Kiev. Uh, again, uh, the third donor conference, very successful. Our British allies uh, hosted uh, two of those. So, you know, sort of your sense on what the takeaways are. Well, uh, a number of things. First, uh, obviously, uh, $33 billion is an awful lot of money. Uh, $4 billion in F, uh, FMF, foreign military financing, is roughly what the Israelis get. So, Ukraine has jumped to the top of the league table in terms of what uh, we are willing to uh, essentially give them uh, and pay for it. Uh, so that's a huge deal right there. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, that appeared today in The Hill about uh, supporting what Lloyd Austin had said. Uh, and I totally agree with Terry and, and what she heard. Uh, I don't think Putin is going to go nuclear. And, and there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, One is he doesn't know how we're going to respond. Uh, And we don't have to respond with uh, nuclear weapons either. We've got tremendous capability, non-nuclear capability that's strategic. Uh, And anything like that creates a situation for him 
where the very thing that he worries most about, which is regime change, could well happen uh, if he brings NATO into a war. So uh, that, I think, is, is not as much a possibility as some people worry about. And Austin has been criticized for what he said. Uh, but I think it's terribly important. And the real issue want, that I just want to I just want to stop you there and just ask you why you thought it was right, because he did come under criticism uh, yes. for some who said that, you know, we're, we're trying to weaken uh, Russia. Uh, you know, you and I have spoken about this issue numerous times, both on the program and and not about the importance of being clear what it is you're trying to do. From your standpoint, why was uh, Lloyd Austin uh, right in making the comments he made? Because some looked at it as, oh, my God, you know, um, he's really gone off the reservation. Well, I mean, essentially, the criticism is that uh, he's backed Putin into a corner. And that's why Putin might go with uh, non-conventional uh, weapons, chemical, uh, radiological, nuclear, whatever. Uh, and it seems to me that that's not the case. It's terribly important for Putin to hear that we're in, we're in this thing for the long haul. Um, he's not, Austin was not talking about regime change, um, but you know, we're hearing now and we heard it from Terry, uh, you know, they're looking at Moldova. They, they, they want to take over more of Ukraine. Um, somebody has to say hey, to Putin, look, we are serious about this. And so in that regard, I think Austin was absolutely right. And uh, we just shouldn't, we shouldn't deter ourselves. Uh, we did that for a while when the president talked about World War III. I think we've gotten past that and that's terribly important. Um, and so uh, my big takeaway from this week actually is that uh, the donor conference was very important. Um, you know, it's not just the German turnaround. The Israelis showed up at the donor conference. That's 40 countries. That's a huge number of countries telling Mr. Putin he's not going to get away with it. So there's that. There's the Austin statement. And of course, the 33 billion. And that has to pass quickly. Um, this, this whole uh, change of American approach uh, reminds me of uh, the Falklands War, where essentially the Pentagon became the action office for Britain. And we're slowly show, uh, converting the Pentagon into an action office for Ukraine. And that's all to the good. Um, I, do you do you think that there was uh, any uh, disagreement in the statement that Austin made and the statement that uh, the president made uh, in making the moral case again for this package, why it's important, but also said, look, our war is not with Russia. Our war is to support Ukraine uh, and its sovereignty. Uh, do you see any disconnect there in the in the two statements? Because some well, have viewed it as a correction uh, yeah. in, in the wake of what Austin had said. Well, because when Austin said about weakening Russia, you're affecting every single Russian. Um, sanctions already are doing that. I think to the extent that people may have interpreted what Austin said as somehow going after uh, the ordinary Russian in the street, uh, the president had to make it clear that that's not the case at all. Um, but, you know, uh, anytime you impose sanctions, anytime you weaken another country economically, um, you're weakening the entire population. It's, it's just the reality. But the point that I think the president was trying to make was that it's not deliberate. We don't want to hurt the people. We want to stop Putin. That's very, very different. And ultimately, uh, there is no way to shield uh, the Russian people uh, at this point uh, from. No, that, that's from, absolutely right. I mean, it's a horrible word. It's a horrible word. But the truth is they're collateral damage. There's no other way to look at it. 
Indeed. Uh, Patrick, uh, let me uh, bring you to the conversation. And before I do that, a word from our sponsors. Our technology coverage is sponsored by GM Defense and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and uh, Control. Uh, Patrick, how how what message does this $33 billion package send uh, to China, right? I mean, almost everything that the United States is doing is in a lens uh, to protect that global order. And increasingly, China and Russia are seen as in leagues. I mean, I don't know why it's it took 15 years, but I mean, the two have been in, in the in league to profit from the West while actually uh, building the means with which to dismantle that uh, global rules based order. What are what are some of the messages you think the Chinese uh, are taking from from this? Well, Vago, one of the interesting reports this week is how President Zelensky narrowly escaped being captured or killed on the first day of the war. Um, and if you're in Beijing and you're a military planner and you're thinking about short, sharp, you know, short, sharp wars, you better succeed. Um, so I suspect that one of the things they'll be working on in the coming months and years will be to make sure that if they go after the leader of Taiwan or any other uh, potential target, that they succeed right away uh, and neutralize the potential for the U.S. to build a coalition that can respond, including asking for $33 billion nine weeks into the war. Um, so um, this is an impressive uh, ask by the president, uh, and I think it's going to be successful because there's strong bipartisan and international support. But it's taken us a while to build up our own political will to recognize that in Ukraine, we have a partner that's willing and able to put their lives on their line uh, you know, to fight for their sovereignty. Um, and uh, you know, coming off the heels of Afghanistan last August, uh, where we saw after 20 years of investment, an Afghan army fade quickly. Um, you know, this was uh, something that we had to relearn uh, politically, I think. So in Asia, our allies and partners are on board with this. They do not want to see us fail. They do not want to see aggression win in Ukraine. But at the same time, as with China and Japan, Australia, the United States, Korea, all of these countries in India, are interested in the economic effects too. And right now, uh, there's grave concern about a potential for recession, about food security, about energy security, about how we're going to impose sanctions uh, over the long term. What does that mean for economic decoupling with China potentially? Uh, all of those are, are the larger political questions in capitals throughout the Indo-Pacific. We saw it to some extent at the Ricina Dialogue, the major Indian uh, annual dialogue where uh, Jai Shankar, the external affairs minister, the foreign minister of India, um, contrasted India's principled view and his, his perspective to the European Union's um, advice to India a couple of years ago when they were being attacked on the border by China. According to Jai Shankar, uh, the EU said, trade more, you know, and, and you'll reduce the risk. Well, he said, at least we're not telling Europe to trade more with Russia. <laughs> But at the same time, uh, there's a, a double edge there. That is, they are concerned with the, the future economic growth because that is the future of India's power. It, it resides on a potential economic growth that has not yet fully been realized. China right now is potentially in a deep crisis, and um, it can't be acknowledged politically at the top. But more and more figures, including uh, the CEO of one of the huge private equity uh, investor investment firms, PAG, um, said this past week to the Financial Times, China is in the worst shape it's been in the past 30 years. There's more political discontent than we've seen in the past three decades. And that's all on Xi Jinping right now. And, and he is 
sitting on top of a powder keg potentially, although we're dealing with authoritarian government here. Let's remember that Mao survived uh, the Great Leap Forward disaster in the late 50s and early 60s. So even though it's a disaster internally, doesn't mean that the leadership at the top doesn't survive at least for uh, some years. Um, let me uh, bring in uh, the notion of Chinese uh, stability, because I want to ask a secondary sanction to your question of, of everybody in a moment. Um, the Chinese lockdowns uh, have been brutal in Shanghai. Uh, they're now, uh, you know, Be uh, Beijing is now facing uh, intensive testing. Um, the nature of the Chinese response has done uh, probably more to undermine the Chinese Communist Party than anything else in terms of callous, self-serving officials who are trying to save their skins and doing virtually nothing to protect uh, Chinese citizens. And indeed, the, the death toll uh, of older Chinese is, is devastating in a society and culture that prizes uh, old people, right? Um, and so every revolution has its seeds somewhere. And there are a lot of people, right? I mean, the, the video footage is stunning of just not the nature of the crackdowns, but also like average Chinese shouting out of their windows, uh, you know, uh, in, in to, to voice their displeasure. How, what, what, are, what, are, what are the repercussions of that, um, Patrick? Uh, because this is the kind of stuff that leads to major needle movements it may take a decade, it may take five years, it may take 20 years, but the seeds of revolution get born in cauldrons like this. Well, there's a whole generation of younger Chinese who have grown up seeing nothing but success after success in terms of uh, China's economy and uh, having to buy into the Communist Party's uh, success. Um, I think this arrests that growth, it arrests that trust that the Chinese leadership knows best. Um, I don't think we're gonna understand the implications of that for years to come, but I do think that it, uh, there is a, a counter revolution um, being deepened in China as we speak, because you're right, the draconian measures being used to lock down Shanghai, Beijing. I mean, we're talking about you know, the, the biggest cities in China, the most important uh, hubs in China, uh, having to undergo um, tremendous um, sort of restrictions on what they can do. They cannot both meet their economic growth target uh, and completely lock down and lose all of their freedom and be essentially uh, treated like cattle um, by health and police authorities. And that's what's happening right now. So this, this is going to have long-term implications. Um, you know, much may depend on where this goes and how long it, it goes on. But at the moment, the Chinese leadership is really not deviating um, from the zero COVID policy. They're slightly redefining it around the edges, but frankly, it, it's still a draconian set of policies. Um, I, I think, though, you have to, again, remember, we're dealing with a country where the power has been consolidated in one party, in one leadership, um, and that's the bargain. Um, so when the United States president, for instance, comes out and, and we we put forward an open internet uh, declaration and have 55 partners around the, the world, including in Japan and the EU and Taiwan uh, support it as they did this week, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, putting forth these principles that we all believe in. Um, you know, it's, it's China though that's able to take the actions to, to stop that kind of open internet. Um, and so, yes, we've seen pictures on, on the Chinese internet and globally what's happening in places like Shanghai and they're awful. 
And yet, overall, Beijing is still able to control the political narrative uh, in terms of order and power for the moment and for the, for the foreseeable future. In the long term, though, they've again created a counter-revolutionary movement that will eventually probably overthrow Xi Jinping, if not the party. Um, Michael, I want to uh, go go back to you because I have a two-part question, right? Uh, half of it is about uh, China and India, and the other half is about staying power. Um, lawmakers uh, have been discussing for some time the need for secondary sanctions. Um, there is uh, a concern about doing that, um, right? I mean, we're uh, trying to uh, win over uh, and deepen our relationship with India. Uh, and as we uh, know, uh, you know, the Indians don't want, don't want to move away. Uh, from uh, Russia. We have allies uh, in the Gulf. And Dove, I want to come to the president's upcoming visit to Saudi Arabia, uh, a very fraught uh, relationship there, uh, and obviously a need to uh, to at least find some way forward in the wake of Jamal Khashoggi, even if there has been zero accountability for it, right? I mean, many, there are voices who say you can't condone something like that. And God forbid, if France had done it, we wouldn't have forgiven France. But yet somehow when we're dealing with a, a Petra state ally, uh, we have to deal with it. What's the drive on secondary sanctions? And second, what's the appetite lawmakers have for a prolonged war, deepening sanctions, because right now, Republicans may be interested in it because it will weaken the economy and any weakening of the economy is good news for Republicans to take uh, uh, control. But generally, when parties are in control, they want to do anything to weaken the economy or explain to people, listen, you're all just going to have to pay $7 for a gallon of gas because it's better than fighting a war, right? What's, what's the appetite for economic pain on the Hill? And what's the likelihood lawmakers are going to push through secondary sanctions on our allies and partners? Because I know, personally, I know members who are pretty irritated, for example, that Gulf states are, you know, and India and a lot of other countries are sort of looking past, you know, America's sanctions and effectively you're weakening them, right? Russia's still making tens of billions of dollars a week uh, despite sanctions, right? And when you have a command economy, there are a whole bunch of things that you can do uh, to make it seem as though the impact's not that great. Absent a push from the administration, I think secondary sanctions are unlikely. Uh, you know, look how long it took uh, for the for the Hill to impose sanctions on Russia. With you know, shortly after the invasion of Ukraine, I mean, we were promised by the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee the mother of all sanctions bills that really never passed, and it took quite some time until they were able uh, to pass a bill that banned the importation of Russian oil. So I don't think so. And also the clock works against uh, things like this, in which I would say are extraneous to things that Congress really needs to get done. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, there's only you know, 43 legislative days uh, left until the election. So I don't see this happening. Now, the, the, the appetite for economic pain is, is high right now. I mean, as you mentioned, it does, does benefit the Republicans in the election. And the Democrats um, seem to enjoy pain, uh, judging by you know, the actions they continue to take. So I, um, I, I think that um, it's, it's despite that, it's still unlikely that we're going to see secondary sanctions on the Hill. Terry, um, about secondary sanctions, right? How, what's the European perception of uh, the need for that, right? Because I have European friends of mine who've actually said it's, it's imperative for us to do this, right? Otherwise, our words really are hollow. And we did something for more PR value than actually needle moving. And then yeah. I ask you as, as sort of an American who lives in Europe, right, and is immersed in Europe, um, you know, the appetite Europeans have 
to help Ukraine, even if it means paying seven euros uh, for uh, a gallon of gas. Um, secondary sanctions are on the table here, as always. And, you know, they are discussing a sixth package of sanctions now. But, you know, the, the European focus remains very much on energy at the moment, since they very much have, have gotten gotten the signal that, you know, you can't help Ukraine um, with one hand and pay billions of euros per month to, to Russia for, for your oil and gas on the other hand. And, you know, you just in the last days have gotten Germany to say it will agree to cut off oil, which admittedly is not as important as gas, but it's a step. All of these little drip, drip, drip steps, um, you know, mo most notably from Germany, which is, is one of the, the most hesitant, <clears throat> um, will make a difference. So um, energy sanctions are, are, are what the, the Europeans are really looking at first. But certainly secondary sanctions have, have, are, are there in the background as well and um, simply haven't been haven't been discussed as much since this is something which um, since the, the oil and gas uh, issue has been has been more of a, a upfront. Um, but I think that I mean, Europeans are willing to pay the price. Um, they do understand that this is something that we all have to have to accept. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, it, my own as, as was with many Americans, um, our household costs are going up extremely quickly, um, in part due to this, uh, to, due to the sanctions being imposed on on Russia. And but but you hear people. I mean, I hear friends saying that you know I'm keeping the house colder uh, because I hate Putin. Um, so people have people have gotten the message and and are accepting it to some extent. Um, Dove, uh, your sense on secondary sanctions and whether or not that's something unavoidable and that that's something we have to do. And is our window, um, is the Western window, right? I mean, Putin's whole gambit is I can outlast whatever you, you know, you decadent guys will buckle before I will, right? Uh, is, is his sense. Uh, there are things that I can do with my economy. Russians will put up with more hardship, right? Knock the cable out in the United States for a couple of days. And, and, you know, we'll, you'll, you'll all be putty in our hands. How do how does the West need to look at this? Because I'm, I, I really the theater of sanctions to me is is absurd. We, there's all sorts of things we announce, and there are gigantic backdoors. Whether it's for North Korea, we're, we're just not serious. So we want to do enough to make ourselves feel better that we did something to sort of be able to look at ourselves in the mirror without um, necessarily feeling too bad. But ultimately, don't move needles, right? I mean, and David Asher is one of the smartest people on sanctions on the planet uh, at Hudson. And, he, and, you know, he'd be the first person to tell you that, you know, I mean, a lot of what we've done sounds good, but we need to do a better job. And, and sanctions are constantly about tuning and adjusting. Uh, so, so they do actually bite. The Iranians are continuing with the nuclear weapon development program, and, and the North Koreans are developing long-range missiles, missiles in defiance of the United Nations, right? Where, where do you stand on secondary sanctions and and how do we need to do this in order to be able to really hit Putin the way that we need to hit Putin for what he's doing because he has it's no evidence that he's going to stop doing what he's going to do well first of all uh, primary sanctions as you say uh, haven't affected North Korea and Iran as much as we hoped oh by the way what about Cuba and how long have we have have had sanctions on Cuba uh, that didn't stop Fidel Castro or his brother um, so the well, primary in part because European in part because European tourists continue to flow. Right. I mean, so well, they have but, a very, very rich the, the economy. Point is, we allow. The point is there there's always somebody getting around sanctions. Uh, the only times they've really worked completely was with South Africa and Rhodesia. Um, the, the big impact 
would be actually like what would happen in South Africa if the corporations, and this has started, as you know, really stopped doing business with Russia. That's going to hurt them. That's number one. Secondary sanctions are going to be very hard. You heard uh, from Patrick about India and, and China, both of them. Uh, they're, they're just not going to uh, uh, live very well with us. And particularly in India's case, in the military side, and China's case, in the economic side, uh, if we impose secondary sanctions, just not going to work. Uh, so then what would work? I think, first of all, as I said, corporations bailing out is going to be one big uh, hit for Russia. There are certain things that the Chinese or, or anybody else cannot provide. Second of all, and I think this ties in with the the president's projected visit to Saudi Arabia. That's going to be a big deal. But what does he want out of Saudi Arabia? The Saudis have not increased their oil production. To the extent that they do, oil prices uh, level off. And that, of course, hurts Russia. Um, and so that is the big deal. But the price of that may well be um, some kind of uh, acknowledgement that nothing is going to happen with this Iranian nuclear deal, which is front and center, Saudi Arabia and all the Gulf states and Israel's concern. So you get a lot of issues that are linked here. Um, and then again, I go back to what uh, Austin said, uh, we're going to outlast you. And uh, when the United States said that to the Soviet Union, um, people didn't believe it until it happened. Um, Patrick, are secondary sanctions necessary in your mind in order to press this forward? And, you know, ultimately, if you're trying to message to China that the pain is going to be real, um, they have to be touched, right? At some, I mean, to, to me, it's, it's the show of it. I mean, ultimately, you're, you're doing enough to be able to say you did something without necessarily changing the vector. And to me, at that point, it, it's all sort of falls into more theater. We're making it a little bit harder on them, but we're not really going to change the vector, in which case my attitude is, I mean, then you have to do something totally different, right? Um, because everybody is, you know, nobody, nobody does want to go to war, um, you know, which I suppose would have been the good old fashioned way of doing this. You know, your, your sense on sort of where we are, where we have to go, and how do you do this with India? How do you do it with China? Right. I mean, if, if we're, we're saying sanctions is going to be the preferred regime for, you know, a theater of conflict. Okay. What does that mean? Well, Vago, it means that we're being unrealistic uh, is what it means. Uh, it, we, we have self-interests and we have limitations on all instruments of power, whether that's economic statecraft, including like sanctions, or whether it's uh, military uh, forces like missiles. Um, they're all uh, incur risk. And so one of the things that the proponents of economic sanctions don't tell us is the risk that we incur. So when if we could really truly squeeze major powers just through economic sanctions, they might go nuclear. They might escalate to a level we wouldn't accept. I, I think it is right to put the economic pressure on Russia. I think it's possible as well because Russia is not critical to the global economy the way China is. But if we're talking about secondary sanctions on China, not only will we lose our allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific and in Europe, um, it, China won't go along um, and we'll realize our own limitations there. So we're, we're gonna have to find, in addition to the things that Dove is, is, I think rightly pointed out about what we can do, including talking about corporations uh, to sort of pull out of Russia, keep squeezing Russia we, as we can because economically um, Putin's resources are finite over time. Um, shift the oil and gas dependency on Russia over time. All of those things can be part of a good 
economic uh, pillar of a comprehensive strategy for squeezing Russia for its aggression. But let's not now try to spread that to the second largest economy of the world that's on tap still to be the largest by the end of this decade, China's, and thinking that we're going to get the political support for that in our country with our businesses, but also with our allies and partners who are dependent on, on trade with China. So we're going to have to be much more um, sort of nuanced and balanced about how we go about squeezing the Russian economy for their aggression. Um, the, the only concern that I have uh, is, uh, as Vladimir Zelensky has rightly said, but Ukrainians are the ones dying in the meantime. And so when we say like, well, this is going to be a long war and this is just the way it's going to be, Ukrainians are dying right now. Um, there is an effort, in fact, uh, given how many Holocaust survivors have died in this war, to try to at least save those Holocaust survivors who are in the line of fire uh, and try to get them to Germany, ironically, of all, of all places. So I think there's a moral element of this, that if you're going to do this, then you have to do it and you have to consider what it is that the next phases of this might yeah. Vago, uh, be, you know, look I, like. I'm not disagreeing with you, but what you're saying is, should we be directly intervening in this war? And the, so far, the political will of the NATO alliance has been to support the Ukrainians to fight the war, but for us not to directly intervene it. If we wanted to make that political decision to go into that war directly, if it were a NATO member, um, we'd be in a different situation. But it's not a NATO member. Ukraine isn't. And we're trying to do this um, with less political costs and risks to us. And yes, there are people dying because it's a war. Um, but we're also still trying to do the right thing by making Russia pay for its naked aggression. I mean, my point is, you don't necessarily have to go to war. But if you are going to make the decision for sanctions, then they actually have to really, really bite in a way that drives Vladimir Putin face first into the mud, as opposed to it being a somewhat gradual thing that he can actually survive, sustain and, and adjust to. That's that's what I'm saying. I'm not yet saying NATO's got to go, go to war with the Russians. We may end up there anyway. But that if you're going to do sanctions, you can't do enough to just surprise yourself. You have to do enough to stun and surprise the other guy enough to change the, to, to drive them to change course. And, and that's that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, go ahead, Dove, finish up on this point. And then I have to ask you about the president's visit to Saudi Arabia, as we do have to wrap the program up in about a minute. Uh, well, look, two, minutes. Go look, ahead. Uh, two things. First, uh, it's not just sanctions. It's sanctions and a tremendous degree of military support. And in many ways, uh, the way we're supporting Ukraine is the way we've always supported Israel. Israel fights on its own, but it needs our help. Uh, and that's what's going on here. So it's not like we're abandoning uh, Ukraine any more than we're abandoning Israel. Uh, it's just a different approach. And the fact of the matter is, and you pointed this out earlier in, in, in this podcast, this is the big difference between Afghanistan and Ukraine. The Afghan army collapsed. The Ukrainians are not collapsing. What they want is help and they're getting it. Uh, and I should say that the United States and its allies and partners deserve enormous credit because you know, even though we are being way too specific about some of the aid we're giving, we're also thankfully being very unspecific about the extraordinary help that we're also uh, all providing as allies and partners. And I agree with you that the financial sanctions, uh, you know, and the high tech sanctions will hurt Russia. Uh, and, and China and India and others are not easily going to be able to replace that, which I think is your point, uh, Duff. Uh, quickly, a uh, very important relationship with the United States and Saudi Arabia, more important now because we want the Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia to be pumping more oil out of the ground. Uh, and we've been having these talks with Qatar uh, on gas production. We've been having this conversation with the UAE uh, as well uh, on energy production. Um, you know, certainly there was a... Um, 
I, I would say a hiccup because the in uh, Saudi Arabia told Lloyd Austin it was an inopportune time to come uh, in uh, a visit uh, relatively recently that drew some ire uh, here, uh, drew more ire because Washington ended up apologizing. Uh, where what what does the president have to accomplish? Is there a way forward? And and does the world basically have to say it doesn't matter what happened to Jamal Khashoggi? Uh, it is what it is, and we have to hit the reset button and move on. This is real. Look, I mean, you know, Jamal, it's a, Jamal Khashoggi is a tragedy, but that should not be a reason for uh, a big split with Saudi Arabia. Uh, look, Qatar has now been called a non-NATO, uh, a, a major non-NATO ally, and uh, the Qataris aren't exactly known for their human rights uh, progress. Uh, in fact, one could argue that what uh, the Saudis are doing, uh, women walking around without uh, their head covers now, the, the break with the uh, religious Wahhabi monopoly, this is huge. And this is the kind of thing that we've been encouraging. So uh, I think a presidential visit, which essentially says, look, we, we know that there's a problem with, with Khashoggi. We know that was terrible, but we also know that you guys under this particular crown prince have made more progress than Saudi Arabia has ever made since it was created. Uh, and uh, they're not, as far as I know, a major non-NATO ally right now. And so uh, it seems to me that a presidential visit isn't just about oil. It's about a relationship that goes back many, many years. Uh, the Saudis aren't about to make uh, peace with Israel. You know, technically they're at war with Israel still because of 1948, but that relationship has blossomed as well. And so I, I think that a visit will essentially tell the Saudis we may disagree about some things. We disagree with our allies about some things, but uh, the relationship should be and, and should remain strong. Uh, it will certainly be interesting to see how that gets uh, resolved because this was kind of a brazen act that was authorized from the very, very top. And, and I think that that's what makes it problematic. We can look at some of the things that all nations do, whether the United States uh, and, and the Qataris, I mean, the Qataris would point out, we haven't really done anything like that uh, uh, ultimately. Uh, and I have to say, I carry no water for any of these, uh, any of these governments. Uh, very, very briefly, before I let all of you go, Patrick, is there anything to say about the North Koreans, ICBMs and everything else? Because obviously every week is an active week for Kim Jong-un and his, his team. Anything you want to add to that in about 15 seconds before we go? Well, the military parade that Kim Jong-un executed Monday night uh, in Pyongyang was intended to send a message to the incoming South Korean government that I, Kim Jong-un, am the real nuclear power and the real revolutionary leader and the real anti-Japanese and American revolutionary leader, and you're not. Um, but also, he wanted to send a message that borrowed from Putin's playbook that I also can threaten tactical nuclear weapons and uh, compel you to do my bidding, not just to deter your invasion, but actually get my economic and political goals accomplished. That may be a big bluff, but he's clearly building up an arsenal to try to do that. Everybody, thanks very, very much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Hope everybody checks out uh, Dove's uh, essay uh, on the Hill. Uh, hope everybody has a terrific weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.